This episode contains examples of racially based trauma. There's nothing explicit, of course, but it might hit too close to home for some. For those of you who haven't experienced something like that, though, I'd encourage you to listen in. Erica's message is very important. This is Unsilent, a speak series from No Stigmas that champions mental health advocacy and challenges the stigmas that prevent people from getting the help they need. I'm Eli Lawson, a producer for the show. This week, No Stigmas Lansport Alone will be having a conversation with Erica, a theatrical performer and avid mental health advocate. We'll hear about Erica's late-in-life bipolar diagnosis and how it proved to be great confirmation for the lifelong challenges she'd faced. But we'll also see how Erica harnessed her manias to fuel performance and storytelling. Thank you for being here. If you want to learn more or contact us, visit nostigmas.org. Don't face it alone. Be unsilent. Let's start at the beginning. (laughs) Okay. So um, tell us a little bit of your connection to the cause. Like what, what do you feel brings you to be passionate about talking about mental health? You know, before I even got my diagnosis, I think I had always been sympathetic toward mental health discussions because I just didn't understand why, especially in communities of color, we vilified and destroyed people for expressing emotional breakdown. It really creates this this situation where you have to have the strong alpha black male and then in my case, um, identifying as a female, mm. the strong black woman. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you become raised as this, as a coping and surviving mechanism. My mother raised me as a strong black woman because she thought she had to for me to be able to survive. And I performed that strong black womanhood until I found that emotional breakdown is the only place left for me to go at this point. <laughs> because strength and performing strength can only last with you so long. So I'm here. I am thinking like, oh, I don't have a mental health issue, but I really feel for people with mental health issues later Mm. to learn that I've been bipolar since birth. Um, When did you receive your bipolar um, diagnosis? Late in life. It wasn't Mm. until 2018 that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I was misdiagnosed in, I think, uh, 2010, 2011. Mm. with uh, clinical depression and anxiety. Mm. Um, And while I do think I display traits of anxiety, I would tell my, um, at that time, my psychiatrist, hey, I'm not depressed all the time. I I have very distinct depressions. They feel very heavy when they do. But then I have these periods where I'm just like, heavy as a jaybird. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, lady. And she's, no, you're depressed. So start to say, okay, well, I'm depressed. I've got to take this depression medicine and claim this identity that doesn't Mm. feel right. Yeah. But I actually brought it up to my mental health team. Um, I was seeing a therapist that I absolutely loved at the time. And I remember going into therapy one day and experiencing a mood swing as she was speaking. And Mm -hmm. I interrupted her, which is something I really hate doing. And I was like, I'm not anxious. I'm bipolar. Um, Can you look that up for me? And she said, huh? I was just like, no. The stuff that y'all are telling me is not really helping. And I'm just... I, I was like, I feel it. I've been seeing commercials. It's funny how stuff like that works. It starts to set in. Yeah, I know. Right, right. I was looking at this stuff and, and talking to people that were bipolar. Mm. 
And I was like, that is me. It yeah. that's what my brain feels like. <laughs> not anxiety. And so I was relieved, honestly, yeah. to have a real diagnosis that I, I understood more because it just wasn't what I had been told. I knew yeah. that I had periods of depression, but I knew that that mania needed to be addressed too because it was right. causing most harm in my life. Where did you go from there? Like, was the acceptance piece, you know, lifted because you had this and you identified with it? Did you accept right away? Did you take time? What it was that like? Time, uh, but I think the kindest thing that I did for myself at the time was identify that I have to come to peace and to cope with this first. Mm -hmm. um, I can't be concerned with what other people will think when they hear my diagnosis. Um, because like, like you're just saying, it's, some part of me, just, yeah. like, you know, everything else about me is intersectional. That is an aspect of me, but that's not the totality of who I am. Um, and it didn't resonate and impact me in such negative ways as it did other people. I think that was the hardest part. It was when I realized that my family members and friends, in order to empathize and to make me feel supported, they felt sorry for me. And I was like... Mm. But why? I'm the same mm. person that I've always been. Um, this isn't a death sentence. When you look back at your life, does it do things start to click with this new kind of like information? Or was was stuff in your past answered by it? For other people, but not for, for other people. people. Not for you. Yeah. Um, and I I'm still waiting on those answers to come to me, but as soon as I told some family members, it kind of irked me that the response was, yeah, I could see that. I can see that. And I'm like, oh. how? Right. I didn't see it. What do you mean? Um, and I, I know that there are certain instances in my childhood and in my past where there were signs that I needed assistance. Um, but I don't know if they were mania related because I guess I'm still trying to understand in different phases of my life what the mania looks like. Like, in, in all totality, in, in actuality, this is a mild form of mania for me. Like any of my performative um, kind of like ventures. Yeah, yeah. Like the yeah. smile and the energy. A little bit of heightened. Do you yeah. feel, do you ever feel afraid to be too happy or too excited? Yes. Do you ever feel that anxiety? Yes, I do. I do because I'm a, a naturally happy person, um, which is, sounds strange when you consider the depressive episodes I go through. Mm. But uh, I am a, a naturally happy person, and my mania heightens it because it just taps into that feeling of elation and joy that I just kind of have under the surface. And I fear with being an entertainer and with being somebody who's recorded frequently that I'm going to have this funny aura or air to myself of being weirdly charismatic or overtly joyful but i'm just like honey if you knew <laughs> mm, i know it's hard to like you don't want to self-edit as you're existing but um you know i i, I sometimes wonder because you know a lot of us go through the peaks and the valleys and mm -hmm. with having a bipolar diagnosis i can't help but wonder you know and as a performer so can you tell us tell us about that tell us about the performing and and you know what is since, I guess, 2010? Like, what does the last decade look like? <laughs> so um, I guess this is, to answer your, your last question, this might be where I can trace it back to. I've seen me mm. having mania or, or some form of it as a child because I've always liked to perform. 
I've always wanted to tell stories and be in front of people and make them laugh, make them feel things. My aunt has been telling me since I was a little girl that I was going to be a comedian. I said, oh, no. Even when I went to SCAD, I was writing dramas until one day I just started cracking jokes in class and a teacher said, no, that's your track. But with that being said, it's like performance feels so natural to me. And that's another reason why I can't see my mania as completely negative or devastating to my life because it doesn't fuel the performance. And that's something I've been very, very clear to distinguish with myself. Hmm. But it does allow me to settle into it a little bit more. Yeah. Because to understand my mania, I have to accept it. And Hmm. I feel like that's the same for performance, to understand your performance style and why you perform why you're an artist, you have to accept that I'm going to create. This is the way that I, I, I naturally reside in, in this universe. And so mm-hmm. I can't force myself to create. It's going to happen naturally. I can't force yeah. myself to um, adhere to these standards or, or gatekeeping. You know, mm-hmm. things will, will happen. Yeah. So the more that I understand um, having a bipolar diagnosis, the more that I understand myself as a performer, I believe. What is your performance style? What do you do? Yeah. What, what do you create? Like, um, I have an explosive performance style, and that's I think the best way to describe it. I say that because it has an unwavering, never-ending energy. And people usually ask me at the end of my shows, "How can you do an hour and a half, two hours of this?" Um, and it's just because I love the feeling of exchanging emotion with an audience. Even if it's something that's filmed and I'm not seeing my audience, you mm-hmm. hear from them later. You better believe when you write something <laughs> that's impactful to the people that watch it, they let you know. They speak about it. It becomes a part of the culture. Yeah. And so to do that, um, I think you have to constantly be open to vulnerability, which is is tough. It's difficult. But um at what do I do specifically as far as perform? I write scripts. I help other people develop scripts, especially people that don't have access mm-hmm. to information or to a film school. I understand the privileges that I've been afforded in life to go to a school like SCAD um, where I can learn script writing, but not everybody who can write a script has that information. Yeah. So I bridge that gap. Um, and I also perform um, I do solo work, and I'm working on my um, solo show, The Rhythm of the Blues, right now. So exciting because I finally get a chance to do it in Birmingham, the city that inspired it. What would be some of those moments that, you know, aren't the happiest? Like, what, you know, how, how did you walk us through, you know, a couple of, uh, I, you know, I have my own, my own memories I can pull up, but, oh, you know, yeah. walk us through some of those times and like, how did you pull yourself through it or did you have people around you advocating for you and, you know, to be back Um, to to your midline? And the, the, I guess the funny thing about life is, is as many high moments that you have, you're going to have lows. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't really understand that equilibrium and balance in life uh, until I got my diagnosis. And um, a therapist described to me, that I shouldn't suppress my episodes, but feel them, release them, understand them, and let go of the shame attributed to them. And that's been so helpful. Um, even just this week, <laughs> two days ago, I had a very, very deep depressive episode. Mm. And they're usually triggered by some of the smallest things to other people. 
to this first step of helping me as a friend, family support system was to understand that what's small to you might just have been the last stone on a pile of stones upon my back. That imbalance of me not trusting myself and my intuition Mm -hmm. and me adding shame to something that didn't need shame created this dark place that felt welcoming and comforting. And that's the danger of uh, bipolar episodes that are depressive, I would say, is that mania feels so uplifting Mm -hmm. and those visions or delusions of grandeur. I hate referring to them as that because I think all my delusions are good. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, that can it can make you feel supported while the depression right. is honest and it right. points out. You right. need to let go of this ego complex that has you attached to doubting yourself and, and, and thinking the negative all the time. And truth hurts. <laughs> In my case, hearing that kind of truth, it can send me down. I think you know, a, a dangerous path. And the only way out of it is to really let myself feel it and know that this is a feeling. Hmm. It's going to come out of my body. Um, some of the thoughts that I'm having are not necessarily thoughts that I believe in, that mm-hmm. I want to pour energy into, mm-hmm. but they are thoughts that should be addressed. They are thoughts that should be brought up in therapy. They should be, um, you know, coped with and providing mm-hmm with coping mechanisms. So everything is logical to me about how to get out of a depressive episode. I treat it just like you would having a cold. If you Mm. have a cold, you take your medicine, you get you some rest, you follow the formula, and then you heal from that cold. You can't Mm. say, shoot cold, go, bye. No, (laughs) it's not going to do that. It's not going to do that. (laughs) So depressive episode is the same way. I can say, shoot depression, bye. Mm. (laughs) It's not going to happen. Oh, yes. Um, You situate yourself in, in um, your circumstances and you find uh, uh, yeah realistic escapes. So mm. if you, I'm in this room now. I'm mm-hmm. freaking out because I'm having a panic attack or anxiety related to imposter syndrome mm-hmm. or, you know, because sometimes my depressive episodes are triggered by some big meta concepts like the trauma of being a black woman that lives in America in 2022. Right. Not having a voice or not being able to accurately describe what my gender goes through. Those kind of things that you can't just say, I'm going to drink some water and be fine from. Right. So I'll look at the exit. Like, here's a door. Here's a window. And that makes the situation I'm in seem even more easy to escape to. Because then I can transition the door, the window, another door to this feeling that I'm having is something that's valid. But this can be escaped as well. We can feel this. We can process it. We can write down how we feel about it. We can talk to a therapist and put our coping mechanisms to it. So taking something as concrete as the literal door in my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Right. Um, another thing I do is I try to write down triggers and responses to those for other people in advance. So if I'm going to a family reunion and there are people there that... I know it's going to work my nerves. I'm going to make sure I write down what it's going to trigger me so I understand. Mm. The worst thing to me is saying, you've triggered me. And people ask, well, how? And I'm like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, but I don't know. Right, and I'm already there. Yeah. So good luck Good luck having me communicate it. You can't get out of here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then having a response. Um, so mm. let's say a family member says something like, well, when are you going to get a real job? Okay. Wow. 
Mm. Oh, well, they haven't dared. So I'm just, these are hypothetical. Mm, hypotheticals. <laughs> these are Let's say a family member says that to you. You're creative um, and you are working for yourself. You are paving your way and doing your due diligence and keeping to the process. Um, then write down your possible responses to that. And they don't have to be attitudinal, but they also don't have to be passive. They can be like, this is my passion. This mm. is what fuels me in life. Every day for me doesn't feel like a job because what I do is something that fulfills me more than that. Now, I know that's very poetic, but that's one of my responses. And if I say that to an auntie, she'd be like, <laughs> what do you say to that? You know, you have to like rationalize other people's absurdity. <laughs> I've been known to be the girl that can turn a script around in 24 hours. And I say that a lot. I used to say it proudly, but now I say it to point out um, a flaw of perception. That is a truth. Yes, I could turn a script around 24 hours. I probably still can. But why? At what cost? What am I paying for to do mm -hmm. this? You know, um, mm -hmm. and so at that time, I was behind on a few deadlines and things that are important to me. And that's something that fuels that kind of imposter syndrome of, well, you're not able to do this anymore. You should be so productive when you were younger in your career, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote a piece from an honest place of, I'm honestly not okay. Uh, I will be. Mm -hmm. And that's not the point. The point isn't that I need you to check on me or that I need help. The point is that I need to feel this, release it, and process it so I understand why this has such a strong impact on me. Mm. Um, you know, like, why do I doomsday prophesize everything in relation to my deadlines and my productivity? If people are hiring me, it's because they believe in my products. They believe in, you know, the, the craft that I turn out and they believe in me. Mm. And so if they believe in me and are willing to invest in me, why am I not? If you or someone you know is experiencing a crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for support via live chat. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, please call 911. Other resources are linked in the show notes. What was your, like, what did it feel like when you kind of felt seen? Now... This is the thing. <laughs> Therapists that I feel have really seen me, and this screams to representation matters, have been women of color. Specifically, mm -hmm. one of my last therapists uh, was a black woman. And the only reason why we discontinued working together is because I moved from California. But just the way that I wouldn't even have to explain the, the base foundation of what's bothering mm -hmm. me for you to understand what's bothering me today. Like... I would go into a session with, um, and, and no offense to the therapists in my past that have been white men, but y'all try. But I'm going to a session with a white male therapist and explain, well, you know, I really feel that there's this pressure at work for me to assimilate and to silence myself uh, because anything that I say that might be, um, you know, counter the the group's way of thinking is going to be seen as aggressive or attitudinal or angry or things like that. Um, and then he starts going into, well, what is your approach like? And I'm like, black woman, hmm. that's what it's like, silence. 
sometimes just this presentation of being black and woman in my body is where it's coming from. And then you have to spend a whole session explaining systemic oppression to someone who's supposed to be helping you understand your feelings. Hmm. So when we, when we scream and we say that representation matters, we so very much mean it uh, because it, I don't know, it, it's the difference in someone feeling as though they are validated, heard, and seen mm-hmm. um, and not. Now, this is going to save somebody's life. <laughs> and I'm not saying that lightly because I know no, it is. It's, no, it, yeah. yeah. Dismantling the strong black woman. That is one of the biggest things that we worked on is for me to know that that is not who I am. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was literally killing me, taking on too many projects, saying yes to too many people, letting too many people into my life that did not need to be there. Um, And then how that turned into having an avoidant attachment um, Mm. (laughs) theory. So I tend to avoid things that I believe are energetically going to drain me. Um, and that list becomes greater and greater and greater. Now, my feelings might be valid, but at the same time, avoiding them doesn't make them go away. And it also doesn't make me understand why I'm drained energetically mm. or and, and I was like, I I don't know why I would have um, you know, trigger warning, what people might consider an eating disorder. I, that's never come up for me before. Mm. And having this black woman therapist with me explains how it shows up subtly in the body of a black woman. Your body doesn't look like what the industry says it should look like. Or you need to make sure because you live in LA that you have that BBL body and not shooting the girls down to have it, but just all of those subtleties that exist Mm. in your body and have been there since birth. Yeah. You know, being told that your hair isn't good enough, that your skin's too dark. Um, with me being brown complexioned, um, having people say, oh, well, you're too light or you're too dark or, you know, you never really accept it in your skin. Those things manifest into body issues. Mm. Um, they turn into things that you just accept and swallow and move through in life with that you don't know need to be addressed. Yeah. A lot of stuff came up, basically, <laughs> because I knew that experience so well. I had been living in that experience of having these ideas that I felt, you know, contributed to conversations and not be literally being ignored until a white male classmate took exactly what I said and repeated it um, of having my, my presence erased simply because these ideas of servitude come up or even being having people attribute to you being a teen mom and stuff. Um, why? Mm-hmm. I remind you of some distant nostalgic image of Mammy and Jemima. You know, I know that's controversial to say and people don't want to address it. But yeah, those Mm -hmm. connotations of black women, when you see me, exist. The people that walk up to me and say, hey, girl, Mm -hmm. nay, nay, hey, queen, that, you know, it exists. And every day in this body, experiencing that and not being able to speak out, there was one point in that duo where, I screamed, but I wasn't able to make a noise and it would hurt my body because it felt so real. Mm-hmm. That point, I think would always, it would get Hannah too. And my dual mm-hmm. partner, oh. 
Yeah, because she she was talking over me. I think she had to cover my mouth or something, and it would always she I could feel her hand trembling when she would do it because it was one of the most gut wrenching physical responses that you you knew when you saw. That's how we feel. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that having a therapist that looks like you exposes in sessions. Yeah. Because then you go and there's this look of understanding of, I have been in that space too. And I'm here to tell you, we do Mm. need to hear your voice. You do need to let that scream out. We will make space. Even if it's tough work, we'll do this Mm. together. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Um, When family members started to go to therapy as well. Um, and black women family members that have been fed the same sludge that I had of, you know, we don't have the time and the luxury as black women to talk about our feelings. We have to keep moving on, keep, mm. you know, being the, the pillar uh, and being in the words of, of my favorite author, the mule of the earth, uh, Zora Neale Hurston calls the black woman. And when I heard, I'm in high school, I heard the mule of the earth. I, I mean, it was like my wind had been taken from my chest. Because I knew that feeling. I knew what it felt like to have to carry people and be tired as a 16-year-old. So when I saw cousins and aunts and even, you know, closer relatives getting therapy, it felt like if you don't want an Oscar, if you don't win an Emmy, if you don't ever make a blockbuster film, you are making a difference in people's real lives. You're serving an actual purpose. And that's all I want for my content. More than just self-care, because I think where we got to go now is being bold enough to look left and right at that family table and see somebody and advocate for them. And I think that you, like you said, writing and performing and existing is advocacy in and of itself. But what would you say is another, you know, way that we can advocate? How can a person not be overwhelmed by all the problems in the world and yeah. and and still get up and say, okay, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to do something small today. I mean, that's a big thing. Um, it's a big thing. And I know that you're, you know, I'm from the South. You're living back in the South. Like the dynamic is, vi- it, it, it can shift it's space to space yeah. to space. It can really shift. It's not consistently anything at any one time, mm-hmm. you know? So do you find, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, do you find weight? Like, how do you see advocacy in your everyday life or how do you see it around you? Um, in a very realistic way, I think the way that we use social media can definitely be advocacy, but I think sometimes people rely on it too much. So sharing a post is cool. Um, sharing content or sharing information helps to educate people, but have a conversation about it after. So I make space to have conversations with people Mm. about things that I feel um, I have experience in. So that's not easy. And I'm not Mm -hmm. asking everybody to do that on a daily basis because that can be an exchange of energy that you don't deserve. But but be honest and be kind to yourself when you're going into those situations. Like, for instance, um, you know, growing up uh, as a black person in the South, you always have this conversation with your friends and your family of what are you going to do the first time somebody calls you the N-word? That's sad that that's a conversation that happens, but it does. And so everybody's response is usually the same. I'm going to beat them. You know, I, I wish somebody would. I clock them and all that kind of stuff like that. But the first time it actually happened to me, I was four. <laughs> and oh my so, God. right, I'm not, I'm not thinking about beating somebody up at a Waffle House with my mother. And we're not giving service. And, um, you know, people walking in, passing us. My mom wants to take me for a nice little breakfast and a little church dress and church 
shoes and socks. And I'm asking her, well, why won't we eat, mommy? Why won't they talk to us? Why are they walking past us? And you really come to the understanding that those conversations have to happen on a one-to-one level first. You can't have that conversation with somebody thinking about the whole world, right? Right. Every time she's talking to me mother to daughter, mm. I've got to explain to my baby what racism is and why these people are not serving us and why we're going to stay here and protest it. We didn't make a word. We sat there in silence, but she taught me so much in mm. that moment um, that I never forgot, you know, about how just being in your body can be advocacy, just standing up for what you believe in by being yourself, by living loudly and proudly can advocate for somebody. Because sometimes I just be just doing my thing, you know, like posting something on social media about uh, having bipolar disorder and, and all of that. And, and, and I'll like make a comment. And I remember once I posted a story about ways you can actually help your friends and your family members that um, live with the diagnosis. And somebody responded to me and was like, girl, you saved my life today. And mm. I was like, just living honestly. The person that's, that's watching this and that's resonated with things and that's felt like they saw themselves in my story, um, every day isn't a great day for me, but every day is not a bad day for me. The only thing that is consistent about days for me is every day I wake up with one goal. That's to win, to fight, and to live. Um, and so if you wake up and set your goal, your intention can be large, can be small. But I'm, I'm going to win today. I'm going to fight today. I'm going to live today. Um, even if today is not the best days, I can say I fought, I live, and I won. Because tomorrow I'll wake up and do the same thing. And then that'll be another year that I've won, I've fought, and I've lived. You know, it can, it can be hard sometimes. It's sometimes, right, because see, that it's the fighting, it's the living on the day-to-day that do it. Don't give up. It's another day. It's another year. My birthday's coming up, and I'm just so thankful that I'm so thankful that I won and I fought and I lived to 31 because there were moments that didn't feel like I would be here. And so I just hope that there's somebody that's watching this that that has felt you know that way, has felt you know deep and and dark, and has had a moment, and know that every day that you win and you fight and you live afterwards makes that dark day. And just another drop in the bucket. You like beautiful days for you. So, yeah. Mm, See, that... girls. <laughs> oh, <I cannot. laughs> That's why mascara is waterproof. <laughs> so That's everything incredible. you do adds to that. Even if fighting, winning, and living was simply instead of having a moment where I went so negative on myself. I went outside and I let the sun touch my face and reminded myself that this is just a moment. There are so many moments in life. There are going to be bad moments, good moments. But as long as I approach it with I'm going to win, I'm going to fight, and I'm going to live, you know, you can't possibly expect anything but a positive outcome from mm-hmm. taking that much responsibility towards your own happiness. Because we, tr- we try to have people make our happiness so often, but happiness comes from self. It's generated from self. And that's the beauty of it is that you know that this is your superpower. You can make yourself happy. It might be difficult. Um, and you might have obstacles, but you are that beautiful. You're that unique. You're that miraculous that you can conjure happiness 
it's going to take effort in, in a lot of cases. And, you know, I'm not minimizing how hard happiness is to achieve, but you can do it. You mm-hmm. can. You know, I always, I have a picture back here of my grandmother when she was 14. Um, and, you know, having lost her recently and it's just been, I don't know, like, like hearing her in my head say like, don't you stop fighting? Don't you stop fighting? You know what I mean? And so I'm like, tell yourself that, tell yourself that. <laughs> like, say it. Literally say it out of your mouth. I've had moments where I'm like on the bathroom floor crying, devastated. And I say, you have got to win. You have got to fight. You have got to live. And giving myself that pep talk, it gives me this energy of, you know, I've got the ability to lift myself up. It's going to take effort. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be a quick fix. But I just as much energy as I have to be in this low place, I have to pull myself out of this. And so if the strong black woman taught me anything, that is one positive side effect is that at the end of the day, there are going to be trials and tribulations in life. But as long as you are willing to fight them, you know, you can win. So. Mm-hmm. Um, one last thing before I let you go. So, and this may go in the, in, in the beginning, but what, what you just said was so interesting the str- the strength that was put on your shoulders growing up mm-hmm. has brought you to a breaking point and has pulled you out of a breaking point yeah. what is that experience like like the do you know what i mean it's yeah. it's, it's it's very similar to when you asked me earlier about how do i pull myself out of a depressive episode mm. It's like when you realize, yeah, this is messed up. This card that I've been dealt is, is, is not cool. Observe that feeling. Feel that feeling. And me releasing the strong black woman was feeling it. I had to go through and feel all the trauma that it had impacted and inflicted upon me. And then I released it. So when you release it, you're able to see um, objectively the things mm. that you learned, good and bad, from it. Yeah. yeah. One of the good things I learned was I can survive. I can fight and I can win, you know? So if all of that is true and it's happened in the past, mm-hmm. even if it had been uh, shrouded under this negative mantra of strong black woman, right? it's still a power that I have within me. Right. So I can leave all the rest that doesn't benefit me, like not having any other emotions, not letting people in, not letting people help me um, and believing that uh, vulnerability is weakness. I can leave all of that and take the fact that I can survive, you know, it just, you, I always tell people, you got to find some kind of positive in your negative. Um, no matter how deep that negative is, find something you can use mm. the last bit of fuel to get yourself out of there. That's true. That's true. That's good advice. That's really good advice. This is Unsilent. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was hosted by Lance Bordalone and produced by me, Eli Lawson. Lance, John Panicucci, and the rest of the incredible No Stigmas marketing team. Special thanks to Erica for sharing her story this week. To go beyond the show, connect with us on social media or visit nostigmas.org to learn more about mental health topics. Please leave us a five-star review and share with others wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. New episodes of Unsilent come out every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Finally, remember that whatever you're going through, you don't have to do it alone. Be unsilent. We'll see you next week.